Welcome to Illuminating Intellect, a podcast series about the personalities and pursuits of Marquette University faculty members. I'm your host, Dan Myers, the provost of Marquette University. Joining me today, we have biomedical sciences professor, Dr. Sujin Choi. Why don't we start by just talking a little bit about what's going on in your research these days? Well, when I came to Marquette in 2007, I was a traditional behavioral physiologist, sort of looking at the behaviors of feeding um, in the context of obesity. With the strong faculty environment that biomedical sciences is comprised of, uh, my research program actually started to change and started to adapt to things that were found in our discussions and things that I would hear in, our, in, in other faculty seminars and just pretty much, uh, you know, hallway lunchtime talk. And so my research since then has taken on a little bit of a turn where we now look at the motivations, which is similar to the motivations of why anybody would want to take drugs or alcohol or tobacco and, and so forth. So I began to look at the motivations underlying feeding behavior, what would make an individual compulsively drive towards overeating, because overeating has a lot of negative medical consequences. So there are a lot of reasons we wouldn't do it, but yet we seem to ignore that and strive for uh, exaggerated feeding patterns. And so we started to look at that in an animal model. And I think the most exciting outcome that we've had so far, having made this turn over the years, is that we see that the animals have multiple motivations, as would humans, uh, multiple motivations to eat. And there was a human study done a few years ago that actually asked over a thousand individuals why they ate. And of course, hunger and because they liked it were the number one and number two reasons. But, you know, things like it's cheap, it's habit, it's what I'm accustomed to do, it's my cultural food, it's, you know, th- and they gave over 300 reasons why people choose to eat what they eat. So we have a lot of motivations, and I think it started made me th- to make me think that there are multiple motivations going on at the same time. Of course, I eat when I'm hungry, but when I am hungry, I will choose something that I like to eat. I won't choose something I don't uh, or I dislike to eat. Those kinds of food choices are are included in our diet for other reasons. And maybe you feel that you need the nutritional balance and the nutritional benefit of Brussels sprouts, so you eat that. So we wanted to examine these motivations, and we have found that certain brain regions are um, controlling the first kind of eating when they're hungry, when they're needing to restore calories, and a different brain region is controlling when they're eating because it's palatable, when it's tasty, when it's kind of enjoyable. We often eat in an exaggerated way or when we don't need to eat if it's palatable. Is there an, uh, a relationship in the same way to undereating on the other end, right? So in that case, people are somehow suppressing the uh, desire to eat when they need to eat somehow. Is, is that, are those different processes or are they different ends of the same process? So that's a really good question. It, it's most likely a related process and it could be a pathology in that first brain region regulating homeostasis or or calories. So somehow an individual with diseases like anorexia nervosa may feel that they don't need those calories and all signals say, look, um, I have plenty. I don't have any hunger. 
uh, even though the outside environment, individuals, doctors, uh, the their image in a mirror might be indicating differently, their brain interprets um, we have plenty of calories, we're fine, we're not hungry. Um, unfortunately, anorexia is also still a very complicated uh, psychiatric disease where there are a lot of other factors that play into it. And those, those are the other motivations we eat. We often eat because we're stressed. We often eat because uh, we're bored. We often eat. And so some of those things may also, those brain regions may come into play and impact diseases like anorexia. For my work, um, we're on the other spectrum. Uh, end of the spectrum, we compare our animal model with binge eating disorder, which is the exaggerated um, excessive eating people do, often secretively, often um, in very large volumes in one sitting. Um, In humans, it's sometimes uh, accompanied by vomiting, which is um, uh, the the kind of a more full-blown binge eating that we don't see in animals, but we have the other half. We have the half in which they um, inhale their food as fast as possible, inhale, uh, eat a lot of food in a small period of time until they're really, really just uh, bursting at the seams. But you could still eat just because you're not getting the signal that you're full or something like that. Is that, is that part of it too? Yes, that's correct. So in the last 10 years of my work, we have done a lot of studies where we alter the, that in first brain region that regulates this, the need to eat, the, the eating because I'm hungry. And by manipulating that region, we can create animals, and we see human examples of this when they have uh, brain damage to this uh, particular brain region, that they'll excessively eat. They don't know when to stop. And in the animals, they don't know when to stop, and they'll eat all night and all day long and rapidly gain weight. And so we have examples both in human and animal of this type of um, obesity. So, yes, the that first area of the brain involved in um, uh, the need to eat can be dysregulated, and you get an exaggerated eating where someone just thinks they're starving, they're hungry all the time. Or you can have that part be normal, but the other brain region not knowing when to stop with the palatable eating. The All the signals of feeling full, all the signals of saying, I have a lot of sugar, uh, uh, a lot of glucose, they become ignored. And all I know is that it tastes great. It tastes great. It tastes great. Uh, it makes me feel good. I like it. I like it. And this is the same brain region that is under study by all the other colleagues in my department who study addiction. This is the same brain region that's involved in cocaine addiction, uh, opioid addiction, alcohol addiction, shopping, uh, gambling, um, tobacco. So it falls right in as a natural reward gone awry in which uh, individuals then ignore all the other normal signals involved with eating food, uh, satiety, enough calories, there's enough fat, there's enough, there's enough resources here to live, and just continue on kind of unchecked. That brings up another potential motivation, which is social pressure to eat, right? That's certainly a factor with human beings, right? Right. So some of those other factors, the uh, the 300 reasons that people eat, social factors, peer pressure, feeling the need to eat something that looks healthy because everyone else is, or not, uh, it, depending on your circle, um, are all playing into how we eat and what we eat. And so the beginning is to start to recognize that we do eat for a myriad of reasons. And I think that research has to recognize that before they try to go in and say, I'm 
going to study feeding behavior, they're really studying a conglomerate of motivations. And perhaps that's why we haven't made a whole lot of headway in addressing the obesity epidemic. We've been at it for probably uh, 50, 60, 70 years looking at the neuroscience of feeding behavior. But we haven't come up with any reasonable method to address uh, the behavioral extremes that we see in individuals, and so we haven't been able to combat the disease. Obesity as an epidemic has only grown um, with every decade, and we have obesity marching into the 30% range. So every one in three people in this country are obese, whereas every two of three are significantly and medically overweight. So, And there isn't a single state in the entire country that isn't impacted by a high obesity rate, so you can't escape it. Well, let me ask you a couple of things about that. Um, I mean, first of all, um, the obesity epidemic is growing, as you said, and the, the word epidemic suggests that there's there's a contagion of some sort involved. And I'm wondering what's changing that's causing more people to be obese, and is is it related to these motivations you're talking about? But that also makes me think about there's variation across the globe in terms of cultural um, sort of behaviors that produce different levels of obesity in different parts of the world. So what about this is cultural? What about it is natural? How does it tie into these motivational types of things that that then produce the variation that we see in obesity rates? So those are very interesting questions. Um, We have seen obesity start to tick upwards in the United States at the sort of 1950s when we became a far more industrialized nation where we then developed all kinds of conveniences, even in every aspect of society, whether it is um, how we grow our food, um, how individuals obtain their food, um, how we package food when, um, you know, we started to can food. We started to be able to store them long term. Um, Once we mass produced highly processed foods, we could track how fast obesity started to increase in society. We can still see that growth when we look at other countries that typically didn't show obesity for a very long time. And China would have been one of them. Um, All the way up until maybe the 1980s, obesity was never a a concern in China. But now with the uh, introduction with Western fast foods and westernized foods, these packaged foods, we see that the childhood obesity in China, which was unheard of prior to this, is now becoming a serious um, societal problem. And even in our uh, country, we've never considered uh, childhood obesity be a problem, but now we have about 17% of our children developing obesity um, in their elementary school days. So um, uh, an obese child was, at some point, um, not too long ago, a very unusual um, occurrence to to be viewed, but now we have them uh, in growing numbers. And it has to do with the the way we treat our food, the way we advertise our food, um, the high um, dense uh, uh, foods that we can find in our cereals and in our sodas, and how cheap they become. So fast foods and these sort of junk foods are inexpensive. And so for you can see higher obesity rates and lower socioeconomical um, uh, strata in which that is an easier and a cheaper food to obtain, doesn't require any cooking or skill. And so then it becomes the main uh, source of calories for many families. And so uh, put this together with our cell phone use, our internet use. We don't walk to the store anymore. 
are schools are eliminating gym programs because there's not enough money. Um, people tear up their sidewalks because nobody walks on them. Uh, we don't uh, we don't value pedestrian uh, ways for getting around. And so you could just add uh, probably a thousand different cuts. Uh, has led us, these small little cuts has led us to kind of a large epidemic. And it is an epidemic because we have about 300,000 people die of obesity-related diseases. So when you have a disease, any cardiovascular risk, if you are obese on top of that, your risk of mortality uh, increases, maybe doubles, maybe triples. So uh, um, oftentimes, uh, being obese, you have a much greater chance of dying much earlier than you ought to, five to 10 years earlier than statistically um, uh, predicted for any particular um, gender or age group. Yeah, so based on this epidemic that we're seeing that's spreading not just across the United States, but, you know, it's starting to take root in other parts of the world, as you've discussed. If you could pick one thing to fix with your magic wand uh, that would help us arrest this or change uh, this trajectory, what do you think that would be? What would be that one thing? So that's a tough question. So bigger than my own research question, but would apply, would be sort of my other passion, which is to Make every citizen um, scientifically literate or logically literate. And so, again, in the obesity epidemic, if we understood the relationship between um, activity levels and our behavior and recognize why um, we fall into um, the advertisement campaigns or how we see that the the strategies taken by manufacturers to uh, pursue one type of product versus another. Uh, and we're more savvy and we were more skeptical and we were more likely to inquire and question and challenge. And so that brings me back to the broader um, issue that I hope that every societal member has, and that is the ability to critically think amongst all the information that we have access to. And with technology and with every day, we have increased our ability to consume and process and um, have access to information. And yet we are not equipped to actually judge it and evaluate it and to be able to separate wheat from chaff in terms of fake and uh, fiction versus uh, fact and truths. And I think that if if I had to have one wand wave, and you're only going to give me one wand wave, that is what I would wish for a more um, sort of critical um, citizenship in which everyone was willing to um, evaluate the information and use good judgment and their experience and knowledge towards making decisions. And I think uh, different different ailments in our society, not just obesity, but any other kind of um, aspect of our society would be improved. Our, our communications, our politics, our societal rules, our governance, um, our own health care, um, our understanding of the science around us, uh, the climate changes, the vaccination um, debates, and all of these would sort of fall to the wayside. We would have a simpler understanding, and I think the conflicts would be reduced. So it's one of my other major passions is to instill the ability to question and to critically assess 
data or information, doesn't even have to be scientific data, but just information in a kind of uh, sensible way to make better decisions. And, and I think that's part of what I do on my off hours. That's that's a terrific observation. And, you know, there is a magic wand for that. That that magic wand is education. One of the solutions, obviously, is to change what we eat. But uh, but changing what we eat and what we accept as being palatable is is part of this, I think, based on what you're you're talking about. But another piece is activity level. And that's implied in a lot of what you just said. Um, and and there, there's a lot of ways that we become less active from how we we entertain ourselves to so on, and uh, but but you you're a pretty active person yourself. It says here that you played a club level ultimate frisbee for 25 years. Um, w- was that a health strategy or was that just something you like doing? Uh, that was my form of hand to hand combat. Uh, yeah, that was, that was a personal choice. Um, I started playing frisbee when I was a graduate student. And I kept it up, and it was a great way to meet friends. And uh, frisbee players tend to be um, mostly academics or entrepreneurs. They're sort of um, out in the fringe, so they were kind of a different type of individual, so that that made for uh, good friendships. And um, I enjoyed, I don't know why, I enjoyed traveling and piling people into a hotel room and getting no sleep and driving all night and then waking up really early and playing for seven or eight hours and being exhausted. So I did that for many years, even when I was an assistant professor at the University of Pittsburgh. I I played club ultimate. It wasn't until um, just recently here at Marquette. So I I made my department play a lot of Ultimate. So now Ultimate is the game to play when we have our summer picnics and, and things we do with students and the students somehow know that there's there's a potential faculty versus student rivalry. But most of us faculty have gotten too old to continue to play, so I have only recently retired myself. You said something interesting in that little description of your ultimate Frisbee career, and that was that get up and play for seven or eight hours, and you liked it. And so people develop a sense of uh, different physical activities as being palatable and not as well is that is there is there a motivation piece and uh, a need to exercise piece that's connected in some way or a, a mirror uh, of, of the eating stuff well for me I'm not sure if it's um, tapping into my motivational drives but it's probably more so tapping into my competitive side which is pretty strong and I think most academics have to be secretly um, uh, warriors underneath their skin because of uh, the experiences we have to survive but I think that all things that I choose in my hobbies are competitive in nature they're very challenging at least for me I can't play golf I can't do yoga I find them too passive Um, they don't keep my interest so if there's literally no score to be kept then I'm pretty much out the door. So Ultimates sort of um, fit the bill that it was physically challenging. It's a mentally very strategic game. Um, So there's a lot of um, thought involved while you're uh, burning your lungs out. 
And so I would say that the gratification I get comes from feeling like I've climbed Mount Everest um, and then come out the end. So maybe that's where uh, the the joy comes from. You you mentioned hand-to-hand combat when you described Ultimate Frisbee, but uh, now since you've retired from the Frisbee scene, you've taken up martial arts and you have a black belt in Taekwondo. So, so you moved from your figurative hand-to-hand combat to literal hand-to-hand combat. Yeah. So when I played Frisbee, I never liked to play on all-female teams. Again, the competition wasn't fast enough for me. So I only played on co-ed teams where I played up against um, men. And so the game is faster. The game is rougher when they're in the mix with you. So I enjoyed that. Um, when I retired, I struggled with finding some activity. Again, I don't play golf and I don't do yoga. Um, that would kind of fill that same kind of uh, uh, challenge. So Taekwondo looked uh, interesting. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's basically combat techniques in a non-combat situation, although um, there is some sparring um, but I, I do like the thought process in it. It's uh, it's more mental than you think, but it's enough physical to exhaust me. So I, I think that it's so far it's made a good combination. <laughs> uh, you also play the piano, um, which doesn't seem like hand to hand combat to to most people. But you know, some of the artists or the composers that you mentioned. I mean, a lot of people would say that playing Beethoven is like playing. Is, is like combat, uh, you know, uh, but um, how, how does that fit in with your um, your your sense of competitiveness? Um, when I was younger, I competed on the piano, but um, I certainly don't do that now. I think what I like about uh, classical music is the complex patterns um, that's uh, sort of built into the music, that there's uh, something really interesting and um, clever at times. And I'm always surprised when I come across a piece of music and it's like, wow, that was ingenious. Um, and that was done hun- hundreds of years ago by a composer, maybe when he or she were you know, just a small child. So I, I'm a very um, uh, mindful of the fact that this beautiful, complex pattern of sound and rhythm um, is, is human-generated and, and sort of kind of makes me feel positive about the ingenuity and the creativity of human beings. And I, and I, I sort of revel in that, that I could be a part of that in some way. I, I do hear a lot of appreciation of complexity and everything that you've talked about and some things that seem simple, you know, a beautiful piece of music sounds lovely. Uh, eating is a, in the sense is a pretty simple behavior and, uh, you know, throwing a Frisbee, but you, what you appreciate about them is the underlying complexity of all the pieces that really make that happen, and so that, that's a common theme in in our deep dive into the, into your soul and personality here. But uh, <laughs> so, Sujin, you've been here at Marquette for just a little over a decade now, and this past year, you were recognized with our top research and our top teaching award. You're only the second person to win both of those awards, by the way. 
And uh, it's it's really exciting for me to see that as provost in our faculty because really that's what we want. We want people who are really committed to research and really committed to the teaching enterprise. And when you put those two together, it's a really powerful uh, combination. Could could you just say a few words about you know what that's meant to you and uh, as a teacher and a scholar here at Marquette and uh, you know how those fit together here and in the way that we do our educational business at Marquette. Well, for the research award, um, I'm very thankful for that award um, because I, it validates the collaborative uh, journey I've had in my department. This is something that would never have occurred if I hadn't come to Marquette. Um, I had previously been a faculty member at the University of Pittsburgh Medical School, and I could have stayed there um, till retirement, but I chose to come to Marquette specifically to uh, engage in more teaching activities. And so um, I always worried that my research may have uh, suffered from going from a large medical institute to coming to a smaller university. But it turns out that having come here um, actually has done the opposite. It has accelerated my work and has um, put it in a direction that's highly unique that I don't think I would have ever stumbled across had I not made this move. So I think that, that such an award like that um, really validates the collaborative nature of my department, the the way in which my colleagues and I interact in terms of sharing ideas, um, offering suggestions. It, again, none of this would have happened alone. And so I think that's a, a strong testament to not just my work, but the award really goes to my whole um, faculty uh, base in biomedical sciences. Um, as for the teaching award, again, that is um, also a, a, a very well-appreciated award. Um, I spend a lot of time um, trying to improve and um, cultivate the, the teaching aspect of my responsibilities. And, and again, that is one of the reasons I chose to leave a different faculty position and, and come here. And what I've taken from it is um, I think the students have taught me a lot more than I've ever taught them. And I've learned that teaching isn't just about spewing and throwing facts at them, but it's really about understanding that individuals need different ways to learn, and you can't just uh, toss them a book, tell them to read it, and be done with it. That their teaching is an art form that I think goes unrecognized. And I think for all teachers, whether they're secondary school teachers or higher education teachers, I think a lot of um, nods should be given to these individuals who are really... Um, affecting and impacting the future. We are creating the next generation's decision makers, and I would hope that students who have come across my classroom uh, come away with, maybe they don't remember any of the facts I've taught them, which is fine, but I hope they've learned to think on their feet and to be critical and to evaluate and to analyze. And that's what I spend more of my efforts in my teaching than I actually do about the facts of anatomy, which is what I teach. So um, that's what I want to get across to every person who walks into my classroom is the ability to learn, the ability to think. And I think that will serve them a lot longer than uh, any amount of anatomy that uh, I can force into their heads. That's terrific. Yeah, that that is what I think we get from a lot of our faculty members here at Marquette is that drive to 
teach people to want to learn and to continue learning. And it's it's uh, it's one of the things that makes me so happy to be here and so proud to be associated with all of you who are doing this incredible work at this university. So thank you for everything that you're doing. It's just absolutely wonderful. It's been a really a pleasure to talk with you today, Sujin. So many different things that make up who you are as a faculty member at Marquette. Uh, it's just tremendous to have the opportunity to spend some time with you and learn about that. So thank you for being with me today. And, and I know people are going to really enjoy uh, this podcast. And I know that you're going to continue to be a real inspiration and uh, a leader for your students. So thank you for all you do for Marquette. Thank you all out there for joining us on our podcast. You've been listening to Illuminating Intellect. Once again, I'm your host, Dan Myers, Provost of Marquette University. Illuminating Intellect was produced by Tim Sigelski. You can hear more episodes on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for the word Marquette. For more Marquette podcasts, including Marquette in Milwaukee and We Are Marquette, visit marquette.edu slash podcast. Thanks again for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.